You know, if you're new to Calvary, one of the things that we do is we take a book of the Bible and we begin teaching through chapter by chapter and verse by verse as we go. And we've been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew. Now, in doing that, you know, you come to some parts that that uh, might be um, might be new to some. And uh, so we're going to be looking at that today as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew. We've been in Jesus' final discourse, his final teaching, which is a private conversation that he had with his disciples. And this is not something that he shared by the Sea of Galilee. This was a very, very private conversation. And uh, it took place about three days, two, three days before he goes to the cross. And uh, again, I'm going to share some things today that might be considered politically incorrect. And uh, so, so uh, hang in there. But then also, just to let you know that there's so much more to share, but we only have so much time and we only have so much space on, on the outline. So the big question this week and, and every week really is what do you leave in and, and what do you leave out? What, how do we give you just enough that you're able to take it and do something with it? The Bible is a book of prophecy in, in that it lays out what is going to happen. I'm a Christian today, not because I grew up in the church, because I did grow up in the church, but I'm a Christian today because there came a place where I began to look at the specific prophecies, and I saw that they came true with 100% accuracy, and it caused me to believe and say, this is really true. So keep that in mind. It's, it's, a, it's a book of prophecy, and we've certainly been looking that, at that in, in, this, in this section. It's also a story of how God has a plan to save people and uh, the need for that and, and why, why we need to come to that place where we are saved and why the Bible says lost and saved and how important that is. But you know, when you go through the Bible, it also tells the story of a nation and the nation of, is Israel. And you ask, why is that so important? Why did God choose Abraham? Now, I don't typically come here and, uh, and do this, recommend books, but if you've ever wondered the big why of Abraham and why the Jewish people and, and, and all of that, and what was the plan, there's one book I would encourage you to read if you're a reader, and it's called The Judgment of the Nephilim. It's by a guy named Ryan Peterson, and uh, he is a graduate of Columbia Law School. He writes like an attorney, but very, very readable, lots of evidence, and he goes into a great deal of uh, incredible detail. And I would tell you this, of all the books I've read, this is in the top 10 books that I've ever read. If you read one book this year to understand your faith a little bit more, let it be that book. It's called The Judgment of the Nephilim. But God chose this man, Abraham. And uh, there on your outline, all the way back in the book of Genesis, it says, now the Lord said to Abram, we'll know him as Abraham, his name will be changed later, And God says, I will make you a great nation. And I've underlined that word nation. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you, I will curse. And uh, one of the things that we see in there is God says, I'm coming to you, Abraham, but I'm going to make you a great nation. You're going to become the beginning of the nation of Israel. But he says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. In the Bible, you have what's called unconditional promises and conditional promises. A conditional promise is when God says, if you do this, then I will do that. It talks about some things financially. If you do this, I will do that. And that's a conditional promise. You have unconditional promises, and that this here is an unconditional promise, which means that there is no condition. God just says to Abraham, I will bless you and the nation that you become. Uh, those who bless 
bless you and I will curse anyone who curses you. And it has no conditions to it. There's no, if you're good, if you're faithful, it's just, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. So as Abraham's offspring become this tiny little nation of Israel, you know the story. They ultimately go down into the nation of Egypt. They're there for 400 years and over time, not the entire 400 years, uh, maybe 80 years, the last 80 years or so, as they're there, there comes a Pharaoh and he's very negative towards the Jewish people and he enslaves them and he makes their life very, very difficult. But the Bible says, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you, God's perspective. And you know the story how at a certain point God says enough and he steps in and he sends Moses and uh, all of a sudden there's wave after wave of plague on the nation of Egypt and it decimates their crops, it decimates their economy and it pretty much destroys their nation. And at, at a certain point, the nation of Israel says, just just go. And as you read the story, it's the Egyptians who come and they give the Jewish people, they give them their gold and their silver, and just, just go. And the Bible says, thus they plundered the Egyptians. Well, as the nation of Israel heads out of that experience, because God said, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. You know the rest of the story. At a certain point, Pharaoh decides that he wants to change his mind. So he comes out with his entire army and you know how they're wiped out because they had cursed the nation of Israel. They found themselves decimated and cursed themselves. And so those who had cursed Israel received a curse. Well, the nation of Israel goes out into the wilderness. They're heading to the promised land. And as they go, the kings of the area are very concerned that Israel as a nation is coming in. And so one of the things that they do, there's a king and his name is Balak, and he calls a prophet whose name is Balaam, and uh, he says, here's what I want you to do. I need you to come out. Israel's out there on the plain. I want you to prophesy against them, curse them. And Balaam says, I can only say what the Lord gives me to say. And uh, so he goes out and he begins to speak under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we would say. And uh, one of the things that he says, I put it there in your outline, he says, blessed is everyone who blesses you and curses everyone who curses you, which was not what the king wanted to hear. But once again, he reiterates, I bless those who bless Israel and I curse those who curse Israel. And this was a promise that would go on for all time. So even in the New Testament, you have Jesus is raised from the dead, he ascends to heaven, and uh, about 10 years later the church has been established. And once again we find in Acts chapter 10, uh, again this is after the church is established, it says, now there was a man named Cornelius a centurion. He's a Roman officer. A devout man, and I want you to underline it says, and gave many alms to the Jewish people. And he prayed to God continually. And about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said. And uh, the the part that I want to highlight is he's a Gentile, he's not Jewish, he knows nothing about Jesus, but there's something about this nation of Israel. And he continues to bless these people, giving alms to them. And and, uh, it's the only detail, I mean, there's many. Roman centurions there in Israel at the time. But the one detail is that he is giving alms. He's blessing these people. And he will become the only person 
in the New Testament who an angel is sent to tell him, you need to get saved, and here's where you need to go to find out how to be saved. And the one detail that we have is he's blessing the Jewish people. God said, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. If an angel shows up and tells you where to get saved, that's a blessing. Would you agree with that? It's where you say yes. So, so, so there's that part of the story. But then there's the other part of the story as you, you go through the nation of Israel. The Bible also talks about how there would be a time where the nation of Israel would move out of its homeland and in the last days come back into its homeland and become a nation again. So um, this is the only nation, by the way, that has ever existed outside of its homeland for 2,000 years to become a nation again. So there are many passages in the Bible that talk about this. Probably one that's the most clear and easy and small is found in Isaiah. So it's the one that I typically use, but there in your outline it says, then it will happen on that day that the Lord will again recover the second time with his hand, God is doing it, the remnant of his people who will remain. Something happens and there's only a remnant who remain. From Assyria, Egypt, Pathros, Cush, Elam, Shinar, which is modern day Iraq, by the way, Hamath, and from the islands of the sea. In ancient Hebrew, they did not have a Hebrew word for other continents. So they just said islands of the sea, meaning those who are across the sea. And he, that's God, will lift up a standard for the nations and will assemble the banished ones of Israel. They've been banished from their country. And will gather the dispersed of Judah from the, in this case, the four corners of the earth. So in about 800 BC, 800 years before Jesus is born, Isaiah talks about this time where Israel would come back into its homeland the second time. Now when God says this, uh, Israel had not been removed from its homeland the first time. That first time is called the Babylonian captivity, and that's where you have all those great stories of Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It's a conversation for another day. But the nation of Israel was taken out of their nation, but after a certain period of time, they came back in and became a nation again. But about 800 years after Isaiah says this, in 70 AD, the Roman government comes into Israel Jerusalem specific. They destroy Jerusalem. They destroy the temple. And uh, at that point, Israel ceases to exist as a nation. And so the bulk of the Jewish people then move out of Israel and they go literally, literally to what you and I would call the four corners of the earth. And then after almost 2,000 years, in 1948, and uh, we saw it said of those, the remnant of those who remain, the idea is that there's only a remnant, something has just happened that only a few remain, uh, what was that event? Be the Holocaust in, in World War II. The, the remnant of those who remain, he says, I will call them back into their land. God says, I'm doing it. So in 1948, after being out of their homeland for almost 2,000 years, God causes Israel to become a nation again. Now, because this was so incredible, it was taught for many, many years that this is allegorical, it's symbolic, it's spiritual, but you can never take it literally. But they literally did come back into their homeland. Now, the Bible talks about the time when Israel comes back into its homeland. Some things would take place there in the last days. So there on your outline, uh, and from the 
book of Zechariah, which is a small book about pretty much the end times, it says this, and Israel's back in the land. It says, the burden of the word of the Lord for Israel. So very specifically, this is for Israel. Saith the Lord, behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people. And I, I put the word nations there in parentheses. Is that there in parentheses on your outline? Now the reason for that is half of your Bibles will say nations and half of your Bibles will say people. And it's, it's either way. But I, I wanted you to know that, it's, that for all the nations round about. And in that day, I will make Jerusalem a burdensome stone for all the people or all the nations. All that burden themselves with it shall be cut in pieces. So it's interesting when you think about the world today, how the entire world is focused in on this tiny little country. As a matter of fact, if you look at a map of the, the Middle East, we'll go ahead and put that up. If you look at the map of the little Middle East, you can barely read the word Israel. Israel is literally less than 1% of the Middle East as far as size. It's, it's so small that you could take the entire nation of Israel and place it in our state of Georgia, just north of Florida, seven times, and you'd still have room left over. But the whole world is focused in on this tiny little sliver of property. And God says it will be a burden to all the nations. But he said in that time, those who burden themselves with it, the idea is that those who mess with what God is doing, uh, there's going to be quite a judgment. Now, another place in the Old Testament book of Joel, there on your outline, Joel is speaking about a, a time very, very far in the future. And he says, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, they're going to come back into the uh, into their homeland. And that process has been taking place. I wouldn't say they're completely there, but it certainly is taking place. He says, then I'll gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, story for another day. And then I, God says, will enter into judgment against them concerning my inheritance, my people Israel, for they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. I've underlined divided up my land. In the end times, God, he's speaking here and he's very, very emphatic. And he says, you know, it's, it's, my, it's my land. It's my inheritance. It's my people. And uh, there is a judgment, he says, for those who would seek to uh, divide the land. For those who'd say, you know, you don't really have a claim to the land. And uh, they would call Israel the occupiers. But the Bible says, no, it's God says, my land, my people, my inheritance. And uh, woe to those who try to divide. Now, what's interesting is that as you look at the world today, the big question is, how do we divide Israel so that everybody can get along? Well, they're not going to get along, but those who divide Israel will find themselves facing a very, very specific judgment. So, when you look at the nation of Israel, and God gives this promise, and he says, I will bless those who bless, I will curse those who curse. Uh, I, there are those who have tracked this through history. So for instance, in, in uh, the last century, we all saw the nation of Germany, Nazi Germany, and they had cursed the nation of Israel. 
And they brought the Jewish people and they put them in camps and they put walls around them. And uh, any time a Jewish person tried to climb the wall to get free, they were machine gunned down. And certainly we saw that Germany met its demise uh, quickly. I mean, not soon enough for, for many, but the idea is over a short period of years. What's interesting about that, as, as they walled the Jewish people in, when the Jewish people tried to climb out, they machine gunned them. For the next 40 years, or until the generation that participated in doing that to the Jew- Jewish people, you find for the next 40 years, an entire generation, there was a wall in Germany. And any German who tried to climb the wall was machine gunned down. Some say it's a coincidence and some say, no, I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. Uh, those who seek to divide the land, Jesus says, or the Bible says that there is a, a judgment. Interesting, if you were to go to the Japanese government official government website, they, there's a section there, it's called MAFA, which means Ministry of Foreign Affairs. And uh, what's interesting, you know, the Bible says that Jerusalem would be a burden for all the people. And uh, you find that Japan is neither Jewish or Christian or Muslim. So why would they care? Why would they get involved? But on March 11th, and you can download this, March 11th of 2010, March 11th, 2010, on their page, and you can look at this, Statement by Press Secretary, Director General for Press and Public Relations, Ministry of Foreign Affairs, on the decision of the government of Israel regarding the construction of housing units in the settlements in the West Bank, including East Jerusalem. So they make a declaration about this tiny little country that comprises less than 1% of the Middle East. And here's what they say. The government of Japan deplores the decisions of the government of Israel to give permission for the construction of 1,600 housing units in East Jerusalem, in addition to 112 units in the West Bank, just after the Israeli and Palestinian leadership acceptance of the start of indirect talks, which means they're not talking together. The government of Japan does not recognize any act that prejudges the final status of Jerusalem and the territories in the pre-1967 borders Japan demands that the plans should not be implemented. In 1967, the Jewish people took control of all of Jerusalem. Japan came out on March 11, 2010, with a statement saying that they do not recognize that. They need to give it back, and they deplored the decisions of the nation of Israel. That was on March 11, 2010. Some people find it interesting that on March 11th, March 11th, 2011, one year to the very day, Japan experienced a tsunami of what you and I might call a biblical proportions. Is that a coincidence, or is God saying, "I take very serious when somebody says divide the land of Israel"? You be the judge. At least I think it's interesting. If you ever want to track down. Some of these things, there's a great book, and it's called Eye to Eye, Facing the Consequences of Dividing Israel by Bill Koenig. And he goes through many, many of these things where people have said, we're going to divide Israel and what takes place. I don't typically come out and recommend books. We're closing a section today, so uh, there. Do you, find that, do you find that interesting so far? So coincidence, you know, you be the judge. 
So that's the background. You have God, his people, Israel, what he says, and some interesting events, and you could go on and on and on. Now, we have been working in this last section, this last conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. And uh, in chapter 24, it began in verse 3, Matthew 24, verse 3. I'll read it one more time. He was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples came to him privately. Again, he doesn't share this with the crowd by the Sea of Galilee, saying, tell us, when will these things happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? The disciples come to Jesus and they ask, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Jesus takes chapters 24 and 25 to walk through what those signs would be. And uh, we have looked at those things. And one of the things that we mentioned is that Jesus began by giving an overview. And in the overview, in chapter 24, if you go to verse 21, he says at a certain point, and again, this is way in the future, even future for us, he says, there will be a great tribulation, such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. And uh, the Bible teaches that that is a seven-year time period. The church is removed before that, but there's going to be a seven-year time period that comes on the earth. After that, and that's verse 21, if you go down to verse 27, it says, for just as lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Jesus comes back at the end of that seven-year tribulation. Uh, very quickly comes for the church before that takes place. That's called the rapture. Then you have the seven-year tribulation, and then he comes back at the end of that. So keep in mind uh, the promise that we looked at and the warnings that he has given so far as we get into this final section here. In chapter 25, we're going to wrap up this chapter today, and we're going to pick it up in verse 31. In verse 31, he says this, When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and I've underlined his glory, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. And I've underlined that. Verse 32, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. So when Jesus comes back here, it says his glorious return. Uh, this is, would be at the end of that time period that you and I would call the tribulation. This is also called the second coming, and I put that there on your outline. Now, it says that he will sit on his glorious throne. Come back in glory and sit on his glorious throne. Right now, if you read through the Bible, you find that Jesus is sitting on a throne in heaven, sitting on his Father's throne. We would say sitting at the right hand of God the Father. But when he comes back with all of his angels with him, he says then he will sit on another throne. Now that throne that he's going to sit on at that time is going to be on the earth. And uh, do you remember the story where Mary is told that she's going to have a child and the child is is going to be the Messiah, the Christ. And uh, uh, there in your outline, Gabriel comes and he says, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, be the Son of God. And the Lord will give him, and I've underlined, the throne of his father David, the throne of his father David. Now, David was an ancient king in Israel. And in the Bible, it talks about how this Messiah, this Christ, would come and he would be a descendant of David. 
Now what's important to know, when the angel says that he will give him the throne of his father David, David's throne was not in heaven. David's throne was on the earth. It was not a heavenly throne, it was on the earth and it was over a specific nation. So when Jesus comes back to the earth and he sits on his throne, that's going to be here on the earth. But when he does that, there's going to be a judgment. Some people call this the judgment of the sheep and the goats. Some call it the judgment of the nations. But Jesus is going to be the one who's doing the judging. Verse 32, he says, all the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate them one from another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Now, if you, you have the NIV translation, it does a much better job translating this verse. So I put that there on your outline. And it says, all the nations, and that word for nations is the word ethnos, where we will be gathered before him and he will separate the people. And that's important there, underline that. One from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. So the word here is ethnos. It can be translated as, as nations, and that's certainly true but it can also be translated as Gentiles. So there on your outline, I've just put one verse. He says, and Jerusalem will be trodden down by the Gentiles, and you notice that word is ethnos, until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That's a story for another day, just showing you that the words can be used either way. The word ethnos means a race, a tribe, especially a foreign non-Jewish one. The idea is that ethnos just means Gentile people. Gentile people. So what he's saying in essence is he's going to have on that judgment all the Gentiles who are there at that time are going to come before him and there's going to be a judgment. Now I would hold that when he says nations, he's saying Gentiles. And uh, that's what he means. So he's not going to come back and go, you know Syria, you didn't do so good, you know, you get yours. Uh, This one did okay. It's the people. He's going to separate the people who are all Gentile. So Um, he will separate, and then verse 33, and he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. And we're going to take a look at why he does that. And again, this is when he comes back the second coming. This is not now. Verse 34, he says, then the king will say, and here what you notice is that when he sits on the throne, he now refers to himself as the king going to be a very, very different experience than the first time that he was here. When the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed, and I've underlined blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. And I was a stranger, and you invited me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then, verse 37, the righteous, I've underlined that, will answer him. They're surprised. And it says, they answered him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or, or thirsty and give you something to drink? And when did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king, once again referring to himself now as the king sitting on the throne, will answer and say to them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers or brethren, however your Bible says it, you want to underline, of mine, even to the least of them you did to me. In the time period of the tribulation, 
the church is removed before that event takes place. And it's in that time of the tribulation that all of a sudden you see as you read the book of Revelation that the, the story becomes very Israel-centric. God turns his attention back to Israel. So it talks about things like the temple, 144,000 male Jewish guys who go out and evangelize. It becomes very, very Jewish. The church has been removed. But it's going to be in that time where uh, tribulation that many people, Jewish and Gentiles, are going to begin to become believers in Jesus, the, the one that they had rejected or not considered prior to that time. And here, because he has the word uh, ethnos, which is Gentiles, and that's what it means. You, you're either, a, in the Bible, it's either Jew or Gentile. So his brethren would be the Jewish people. Uh, and uh, you're going to have, of the Gentiles, some are going to be sheep and some are going to be goats. But we're going to, the brethren are those and how these treated his brethren. So we would hold that those are the Jewish people, especially in that time period of the tribulation. The Bible teaches that in that time period of the tribulation, that the Jewish people in Israel will go through persecution uh, unlike anything that the world has ever known. And uh, I put a verse there in your outline, Zechariah 13.8, and I got up this morning and realized I left off the last line. So we're going to put it up on the screen, but you can read it later. Speaking of that time period, it's right there on the screen. Visualize it. <laughs> Speak it. There it is. All right. So, um, okay. Is that the verse? I, I wanted Zechariah 13. Do what? There it is. There it is. Okay. All right. Speaking of this time period of the tribulation, it will say, it will come about in all the land. The land is Jerusalem, it's Israel. Declares the Lord that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it. We're told that in the Holocaust, it was one out of four Jewish people that were killed. In the time period of the tribulation, it will be two out of three. That will be how bad it is. That's why it's called the Great Tribulation. Now, it's not just Jerusalem and not just Israel, but that's going to be going on worldwide. But it becomes very, very Israel-specific. There, next to that little verse of Zechariah 13.8, I've put the address of Zechariah 14, 1 through 4. Does everybody see that on your outline? That verse is very graphic as to what that time will be like. It's so graphic that I'm not going to read it in church. You look it up later. But in verse 4, at the end of that time period, you see that Jesus comes back. And that's when he comes back. We call that the second coming. So in that time period as the Jewish people, the Gentiles are going through that very difficult time, they're becoming believers in Jesus, there is something in the Gentiles who become believers, something happens in their heart and they become very concerned about the Jewish, the Jewish nation. And they begin to do what they can, hiding, feeding, clothing, protecting uh, at many times to their own detriment, to their own detriment. Well, there on your outline, 
as we look at what Jesus has to say, he has one on one side, those are called the sheep. And uh, during this time period of tribulation, uh, at the end of that when he comes back, and just write this down, Jesus' favorite description for believers is sheep. That's the, the number one description that he uses for his believers. Uh, my sheep, he would say. But these, in this time period, as they look and take care of his brethren, the nation of Israel, verse 34 we find the king will say to those on his right, you are blessed, you who are blessed. So write down there, blessed by his father, that's what he says. They receive uh, an inheritance, and we would say that would be a a reward, uh, certainly uh, what takes place after that and then ultimately in heaven. And then they receive eternal life. If you skip all the way down to verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So they receive eternal life. And in verse 37, he calls them righteous. Then the righteous will answer. Now, what's important to understand there is they're not righteous because they've taken care of the Jewish people. Uh, You're never righteous because of what you do. You're righteous because of what he does. Uh, But what takes place is apparently they're taking care of these people because of what God has done in their heart as they become believers. So go ahead and write this down. Their works and concern for his brethren are not the grounds for their salvation, but the evidence of it. Their concern for the Jewish people in that time, and I would say even now in this time, um, is a revelation of their true spiritual condition. That's what he's saying. And so the righteous seek to be a blessing to his brethren. And we would say that's the Jewish people. So that's that one side. Then you come to the goats, verse 41. Then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, he says, accursed ones, into the eternal, what's that word say? Into the eternal fire. Does your Bible say eternal fire? Okay. What does it say? Everlasting? Okay, we can use everlasting, that'll work. Either way, we get the picture. Eternal fire, everlasting fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. It was never prepared for us. Um, it was prepared for somebody, but, but, but it wasn't prepared for us. So two things. The goats, we find, they're going to be on the left hand, they're cursed, ultimately by, by his father. And you notice it says that they go into eternal fire or everlasting fire. Now, the reason that's so important is that Jesus taught and believed in hell. You and I live in the first generation where people profess to be believers in Jesus, followers of Jesus. We just don't believe what Jesus believed and taught, and uh, we still think that we are followers of Jesus. Jesus believed in that. I would encourage you, always believe what Jesus believes. And so there's, there's a penalty for this. Verse 42, he says, For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat, and I was thirsty, and you gave me nothing to drink, and I was a stranger, did not invite me in naked, and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. And they themselves, they themselves will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you? And then he, he will answer them, truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it, to the one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. These will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. What hits you 
in this story and in this chapter. It wasn't that they were openly hostile to his brethren. They were just ambivalent to their need. But he treats it as though they're openly hostile. Go ahead and write this down. Their ambivalence toward his brethren, we would hold that would be the Jewish people in that time period and certainly now, was not the grounds for their lack of salvation, but was the evidence of their true spiritual condition. When you think of ambivalence and you go through this chapter, this chapter began with the story of the ten virgins. And you recall that from last week if you were here. Five were ready, five were not. The five that were not weren't hostile. Uh, They just didn't think it was a big deal. And so they were ambivalent to being ready. But we noticed that that was treated as though they would be openly hostile. Then we considered the, the servant who received the talent. Now, two had a belief about their master when they received the talent, which was a sum of money. And their belief about their master, there was something inside of them, based upon their belief, that caused them to be excited. And they couldn't wait to go and take what it is the master had entrusted to them and begin to use it for his purpose. But then there was the third one, you know, the one that hit it in the ground. He wasn't hostile to the master. He just didn't think it was a big deal. He was ambivalent. But you'll recall from last week when he encountered the master, when the master came back, being ambivalent was treated the same as being openly hostile. Here in our story today, you have those, they weren't openly hostile, they were just ambivalent. It really wasn't a big deal to them. Not being a big deal to them revealed the truth about their spiritual condition. As we wrap this up today, and we wrap up this section, we wrap up this conversation that Jesus has had privately with his disciples, I think it's good for all of us to evaluate, to make sure that we don't find ourselves, like the first story, kind of casual about being ready. You want to know that you know that you know that you've embraced Jesus. You've invited him in. The reason that we are saved, the word saved means something really bad was about to happen, but before that happened, something happened and we were saved. Jesus taught about that today. You want to make sure that you are saved from that. The way that you are saved from that is inviting Jesus to come into your life to forgive you of your sins and placing your trust wholly and completely on what it is that he has done for you. Don't be ambivalent about that. Don't be ambivalent about what it is that he has entrusted you with. If you're here today, as we looked last week, one received from the Lord but it wasn't a big deal to him. He didn't really use what God had given him for God's purposes, just kind of ambivalent. It revealed the truth about where he was spiritually. As you evaluate your life, if you are ambivalent about the things that God has given you, if you're ambivalent about the things of God, it reveals something. Don't let that be you. And uh, here today we have a unique situation where it's ambivalence towards a certain group of people. And so what do you do with that? 
uh, we found a way in our church and uh, as a family to find a way to be a blessing to the nation of Israel and always take a stand for them and never against them. But each of us needs to evaluate and don't leave here today ambivalent to being ready, to using what it is that he's given you or who it is that he's called you to, to care for. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, as we wrap this up today, uh, recognizing this can be somewhat of a politically incorrect teaching, but Lord, we're asking you by your Holy Spirit to open our eyes and reveal to us the things that you'd want us to see. We recognize that we live in a unique time where Israel really did become a nation in 1948. And we've looked at some of those events that, that we've seen, your promise and your warnings. And... Uh, either coincidence or very interesting. So Lord, as we stand before you today, first of all, we don't want to be ambivalent to being ready. And so if we evaluate and say that we are, then we invite you to save us. Step into our lives. Forgive us of our sins. Let your Holy Spirit step in. And just like we saw with the sheep and the goats, there was something that caused them to desire to want to be a blessing to what it was that you were doing. We want to see that change that cannot be manufactured. It has to be a spiritual change. Lord, we don't want to be ambivalent to what it is that you've entrusted us with. And if we evaluate and we see that we have been, then we repent today. And by your spirit and your word and your working, do that work and change us from the inside. Father, I pray that you keep each and every one of us until we meet again. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. And all God's people said, God bless you guys. We'll see you next time.